Good morning. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, I am Ken. I'm our youth pastor, and I get the, the privilege to speak to you today. We were at a, a, a Christmas party last night, and I kind of mentioned and threw out that I was speaking today instead of Pastor Chip, and uh, Cody responded, it's kind of like showing up and expecting to see LeBron James and getting Channing Fry instead. <laughs> At first, I took offense to that, but then I thought, you know, that's happening because LeBron's getting old, and so, Chip, uh, sorry, buddy. <laughs> oh, but this morning, we're, gonna, we're going to continue uh, our Christmas series uh, called Unwrapped, and this morning, we're going to do something just a little bit different. I'm a youth pastor, and so we're going to try to incorporate a little bit of technology here. We're going to see if this works. Uh, everybody who has a phone, go ahead and take out your phone. I want you to text this number, uh, 419-785-6162. I want you to respond uh, or text me your response to this question. What is the most memorable gift you've ever received at Christmas? And this is a Google Voice number. So if you try to text me after church today, I will not get it because we're shutting it off. But for right now... This is going to come to my phone. I'm not going to, we're not going to sign you up for anything crazy or anything like that. Uh, but I want to see, I want to see your responses to what was your most memorable gift you've ever received at Christmas. And while you're doing that, uh, I want to show you a clip of something that's probably not going to be on your list. Can of Simon eyes. Ralphie, what did Aunt Clara give you? Show everybody. I don't want to. Ralphie, show everybody what Aunt Clara gave you. <sighs> Aunt Clara had for years labored under the delusion that I was not only perpetually four years old, but also a girl. She just always gives you the nicest things, Ralphie. Oh, my. Oh, isn't that sweet? Ralph, go upstairs and try it on. I don't want to. Go upstairs right now and try on that present. She went to all that trouble to make it. Now, go on. We're waiting. Oh, come on, Mom. Right now. Immediately, my feet began to sweat as those two fluffy little bunnies with the blue button eyes stared sappily up at me. Oh, isn't that cute? That is the most precious thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he looks like a deranged Easter bunny. He does not. He does, too. He looks like a pink nightmare. Are you happy wearing that? Do you want to take it off? Look, you tell the kid to take it off. All right, you'll only wear it when Aunt Clara visits. Go on and take it off. Take it off! <laughs> my, my, favorites, my favorite part is little brother that's sitting on the floor that's, that's dying laughing. Okay, so these are some of the responses we've received. Um, the Lego Town Main Street, a necklace, the Lion King musical tickets, an iPad mini, a black and white TV, 
Um, adoption of our kids. Nintendo game console. Cell phone with camera. A dog for my grandpa. Baseball glove. A puppy. A house. And a ring. Somebody just texted in with Mario Kart 64. <laughs> um, you know, it's amazing how, how gifts have the ability, regardless of their actual worth or their practicality, um, to so greatly affect us. They get etched in our brains and in our memory, and they have, there's, there's something special about them. I remember the most memorable gift, if I was to respond to this as well. Um, it came when I was five years old, and that year I was surprised I actually got anything at all. Um, I was a fairly easygoing child coming up, but there was one year where I remember I, I maybe threw a handful of, of temper tantrums my entire childhood, but one of them came around Christmas time when I was five. And uh, my mom and I were doing some last minute Christmas shopping in Walmart. And we were in the electronic section back before they like rearranged Walmart and the electronic section was right in the middle of the store. And we were in there, uh, again, I was five, and uh, we were walking through, and I saw on the wall a display for a cassette Walkman, uh, the actual, like, Walkman brand. It wasn't, like, some, like, off-brand cheap thing. It was the Walkman brand. I really thought I needed that really bad. My life would be complete if I just had that Walkman. And my mom didn't understand. She said, no, we, you know, your gifts are already at home and like Santa's going to bring you something. And so I thought, well, maybe if I throw myself on the floor and scream, I'll get this. And so I did it. And my mom just like stood over me and like was scowling down at me. And to my mom's horror, a gentleman walks up, takes the Walkman off the rack, goes and buys it at the checkout stand there, and comes back and hands it to me. <laughs> and my mom could have melted into a puddle on the floor right there in the middle of Walmart, and I did not receive that Walkman. As soon as we got out of the store, that left my hand, and I'm pretty sure my mom used that when she was cleaning around the house, just to remind me <laughs> of how awful temper tantrums are. But that year... The reason why my mom didn't buy me the Walkman right away is because they had a different gift in mind, a bigger gift for all of us. So I was the youngest of five boys in my family. So that year, my mom and dad purchased us a Super Nintendo. And that was a big deal for us. We didn't have a lot of like the, the like newest stuff that would come out. We, didn't, we weren't really interested in that. We were more of like the outdoorsy type boys that want to go out and, I don't know, do stuff in the backyard and play with the friends down the block. So Super Nintendo uh, was something that was different for us. And the reason that that is the most memorable gift is because uh, 13 years later, when I left to go to college, that Super Nintendo was still hooked up to a TV, and I literally got to interact with every member of my family through that game console. And it still worked when I left to go to college. You still had to blow kind of in the game before you popped it in the, the slot, but it still worked. And I still remember the times that I spent with my brothers and even my parents who never touched technology hardly ever. I remember sitting and playing games with them and interacting with them and spending time with them around that Nintendo. And uh, th that kind of brings us to what we're going to be talking about today. We've, we've been talking about the book of John. We've been looking at the Christmas story through a slightly different angle. And we're looking at it through um, the book of John, the Apostle John's book. 
uh, which, uh, you know, when I kind of think about the book of John, I kind of think about this. When I was in college, or just after college, I graduated, it was 2011, my, uh, one of my best friends from college was getting married, his name was Matt, and he was getting married in Louisiana. Uh, he and his wife decided to get married at this plantation home there. I've never been to Louisiana, but I was one of his best men, so um, I, was, I found myself driving down, following a GPS, trying to get to St. Francisville, uh, Louisiana. And I've never obviously been there. I had to take a ferry and cross this river and do all this different things. And I arrive at where the GPS says this house is located. But I didn't find a house there at all. I found two stone pillars and a, and a like gravel driveway. And it's at nighttime and it's in Louisiana. Like you can picture like weeping willows with moss hanging down off of it and all this. And so I'm kind of freaked out and I don't know, I'm not sure if I should pull into this dark unlit driveway or if I should just keep going and call and make sure I'm in the right place. But I knew my friend Matt was waiting for me. And so I proceed up this driveway and this driveway is like two or three miles long. But it's kind of cool because it takes you by what used to be the slave quarters of this plantation, took you by what was the cemetery for the people that lived there. Um, Still kind of creepy because it was all at nighttime. And I follow this all the way up and then I turn a corner and there's this massive house that is three stories tall that have the cement pillars that span all the way around. It's got a wraparound porch that goes all the way around the house. I mean, this is the legit plantation home that you think of when you think of um, that type of architecture. This was it. And it was massive. And I remember driving up to it and just kind of being in awe of the house and kind of a little even intimidated by it. And then all of a sudden, that all went away because out from the front door came my friend Matt. And he, uh, he sat down on the steps and waited for me to pull up and, and completely park. And uh, this, is, this is what N.T. Wright has to say about the book of John. Approaching John's gospel is a bit like arriving at a grand, imposing house. Many Bible readers know that this gospel is not quite like the others. They may have heard or begun to discover that it's got hidden depths of meaning. According to one well-known saying, this book is like a pool that's safe for children to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. But though it's imposing in its structure and ideas, it's not meant to scare you off. It's meant, to wel- it's meant to make you welcome. Indeed, millions have found that as they come closer to this book, the friend above all friends is coming out to meet them. The book of John has a lot of layers to it, and it can be an imposing book. And when you go through a theology class over the book of John, you can talk about a number of different things from the miracles that Jesus performed to the different illustrations that John uses all the way through the book. And you can, you can dive in and get really deep with it. But at the very beginning of the book of John, we meet the friend above all friends. We meet Jesus. We meet the Word, the Word that's become flesh. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But as we we talk about that today, it's important for us to remember what we've been talking about. In the first 18 verses of John, we kind of get this prologue, this introduction to who Jesus is. And during week one, we unwrap that God always comes through. Um, Long before we get to that first Christmas night, God spoke to prophets and people about this coming of a Messiah. And I, I, I'm blanking on the number of different prophecies that were made about Jesus, hundreds of them, and they all came true. God was at work and God came through long before we even realized that we needed him. 
He was making the plans. He was getting things ready. He was preparing even the, the, the place in the city that Jesus would be born in. And that helps us to know that God does keep promises. God always comes through. And we're facing something that's, that seems um, impossible. God always comes through. During week two, we remind that God always meets our needs. God knew our need of a Savior, even though his creation didn't really notice that it needed one. John uh, 1.10 says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Even when we don't see a need for God, he's still there with us. And then last week, um, we talked about the fact that God always gives us the best opportunity. Uh, Pastor Chip talked to us last week about being born again, that this baby's birth made the way for many other spiritual births to happen. Through God, we can receive new life, and that's the best opportunity that we could receive. So that brings us to the next three verses in John 1, which is 14 through 17. Uh, And I'm going to read these for you. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. This morning, I want to look at three different things as we uh, kind of make our way and continue unwrapping Christmas from the point of view of John. The first thing that I want to look at today is that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is important on multiple different fronts. First off, the contextual reason. Why John makes sure that he puts this in his book and he repeats it multiple times. John wants his readers to know that God came fully man and fully human. There was a group of people at the time called agnostics who were preaching that that God came in a spiritual form and inhabited a human body, but he wasn't really tied to it. He kind of would come and go as he pleaded. There was no connection with the flesh because the flesh was just evil. It was mankind. It had fallen, and God couldn't be in that. And it's important, and John wants us to realize it's important that we know that God came fully tied to his human body because without that, it starts to break down everything else that Jesus did for us throughout his life. This morning, we took communion. And if, if God was not fully human when he came, and Jesus was not the God incarnate in human body, the communion elements that we took would not matter. Because if God wasn't tied to his human flesh, that means he wasn't tempted. That means he didn't feel pain. That means that he could leave when things got difficult and rough. Jesus was fully God and fully man throughout all of that. And that makes the elements completely important. That adds the significance of what we did this morning. Without that, the baby in the manger would not be as significant as it was. God came, was fully God, and fully human all at the same time. Um, And that's also um, a big idea because 
uh, of just the sheer magnitude of, of thinking about the fact that God came, left heaven, left the, left the glory and the awe of heaven, and left the, the, um, the, the realm outside of time. And he stepped down and joined his creation where they were. Uh, the the uh, word for flesh, uh, sarx, that's exactly what it means. It means a human body, tissue. That's the word in Greek that's used there. Um, and then the Greek word that's used for made his dwelling among us um, is literally translated as he pitched his tent among us. He came in and moved into our neighborhood. Uh, Jesus uh, coming to live with us is something that's hard for us to understand because probably you and I have not ever seen someone display this type of love and affection for us. You know, I even like, I, I think of our, our own government. We have people who are our lawmakers and who are people who are in charge and they don't even live by the same rules that we do. God came and not only did he come, not only did he inhabit, not only was he here, but he made himself live by the rules of this earth that he has put in motion. And he did it for you and for me. The, the, the teens and I have been talking over the last few weeks um, uh, kind of about this very topic. We talked about the fact that Christmas for some can mean something that's very, uh, it can be a time that's joyful. It can be a time that you get to spend time with family. It can be a season full of memories and full of, of just great things. But for some, the Christmas season can be a reminder of pain and of hurt and of loved ones no longer with us. And if we let it, Christmas can become a very lonely, depressing, and bitter time because of the things that have gone on in our past. But regardless of whatever's gone on in our past, we know that God came in human form for you and for me. And even in the most trying of times, that is a message of hope. God came, moved into our neighborhood, and lived among us. And the reason for that we're going to look at here in just a moment. The second thing uh, that's important from this passage is his glory. Um, we, we read in verse, um, well, at the end of verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first time we come into interaction in Scripture with God's glory is in Exodus. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai in chapter 33. And he's talking with God. He's receiving the law. He's uh, receiving the Ten Commandments. And then in verse 18, Moses gets a little bold. Moses says to God in verse 18, Now show me your glory. God has just kind of... Um, told Moses that because Moses has been faithful, he's going to use him and he's going to, uh, all these things are going to, are, are going to come about because Moses listened to God. And, and he, he went through the whole promise and um, the moving back into this land that they had promised. And Moses responds with, now show me your glory. Moses wants to see God. 
And then God tells him, well, you can't. Because if you were to really see me, you would die. My, my uh, radiant essence would be too much for your earthly, frail, fallen body to handle. If you saw me in all of my splendor, you would die. So Moses, or so God decides to do this for Moses. Looking on in, in verses uh, 22 and 23. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will be able to see my back, but my face must not be seen. Moses wants to see God, but all that Moses can really see of God, all that God will allow Moses to see because it will kill him if he sees more, is just like, his, like the very back corner edge of God. What is this glory? Why is this glory so um, potentially devastating to Moses? The glory of God is his essence. If we were to sit and make a list of all of the things that make up God, we, we've, uh, we've talked uh, even over the last few series that we've done, there's God is a God of love. God is a God of, of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And if we continued to make a whole list of who God is, that is God's essence. That's what God is made up of. And at this time, before Jesus has come into the world, that essence, that goodness, that part of God is manifested itself in light. And that light is so strong and so powerful that if Moses were to have seen it completely, he would have died on the spot. So keep that in mind. We're going to jump to Matthew 17. And in the first three verses of Matthew 17, we read this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Jesus as if we needed more proof, is God. This essence that Moses saw, that after Moses spent this time with God, he came down the mountain, he didn't realize that he was glowing. This essence, the goodness of God, the, 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 everything that God is comprised of in this light, this is Jesus as well. But this is something significant. Because for the first time with the coming of Jesus, we get to look and we get to see who God really is. We can look at Jesus and we can see what God is doing. We can see what God is, what God is up to. And we are not afraid like Moses is of falling down dead. For the first time, we can look at who God really is in the person of Jesus and we can know him. And we can, we can understand God on a different level because Jesus came and put skin on and lived among us, we were able to see this glory of God. We see it when Jesus heals the lame and helps the blind to see. We see it when Jesus um, stands and preaches to thousands and thousands of people and then feeds them from a few loaves of bread and fish. We see it when Jesus visits the tomb of Lazarus. And he calls his friend out and he even comments to 
Martha about his glory. We can see God because Jesus came as a baby in a manger and lived among us and experienced the things that we experience on a regular basis. Finally, the last thing uh, that I kind of want to point out to us from this passage this morning is this idea of grace in place of grace. We talked last week about the fact that grace is, is something that we couldn't earn on our own merit. And 16 and, and 17 tell us this, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. This grace that Jesus brings with him uh, in 16, it's coupled with truth. And it's very important for us to realize that Jesus is grace and truth. Jesus brings something to us that we can earn on our own merit. And it's by believing in that grace, believing in that truth that we receive grace. The law came through Moses. While Moses was up on the mountain, God gave him this, this rule, this list of things that we are supposed to live by. And that, that was grace in a way to those people because they didn't have a savior. They didn't have someone coming down to them, helping them, showing them how to live. They had to do their best to live by these mandates that God gave them. So that hopefully through following these mandates and through being in a relationship with God as a nation, they could show the rest of the world who God was. But then in place of that, Jesus comes. And Jesus brings with him not just the truth, not just the law itself, but he brings the grace that goes with that law. He brings this ability to be born again and this ability that we don't have, we don't do anything to earn this. There's nothing that you or I could do. We couldn't attend enough church services. We couldn't spend enough time reading the Bible, although those are great things. We couldn't spend enough time in prayer to earn this grace that Jesus brings with him. And by believing in the truth that Jesus brings with him, we receive that grace. And this grace is a grace that, as we read, never ends. It's grace in place of grace already given, meaning if you use grace one time and you mess up and you need to go back and receive more of that grace, it's there for you. It's a never-ending supply of when, when you get through this part of grace and you go move on, you get the, there's grace again and there's grace again. And it literally means grace on top of grace on top of grace. We talk about the fact that um, Jesus' love knows no bounds. And that is grace. Grace knows no bounds. There's not a time where we will come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I messed up. There's not a time that Jesus will say, well, you know, I helped you out here and here and here, but you came back again. And uh, I just think it's, we should probably go different directions. Grace never, Jesus' grace never ends. 
when we talk this Christmas season about the good news. This is the good news. This, the, the news that's revealed to us in 14 through 17 in, first John, or in John chapter 1, this is it. God came to us completely in the flesh. God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus, and God extends grace and truth to us. God always gives us his best. And this is a gift that is truly beyond our imagination. And this illustration is really poor, but I set it up earlier. The world thought they needed a $10 Walkman, but Jesus showed up with a Super Nintendo. Seems kind of silly. But that is what's conveyed to us in this passage. This morning, um, I want to end in a slightly different way. I think I've shared with you before that I'm a person who learns best through a story. And this morning, I want to read to you a short story by Barbara Brown Taylor. And she is a um, Episcopal priest, and she is a teacher at Yale Divinity School. And um, the, uh, um, she's the dean of, dean of the uh, uh, religion department at Piedmont College. And she wrote this story. And this story, really, it conveys to us um, what's the theological significance of what's going on in John chapter 1. Now I'm going to read that to you today. Once upon a time, or before time actually, before there were clocks or calendars or Christmas trees, God was all there was. No one knows anything about that time because no one was there to know it. But somewhere in the middle of that time before time, God decided to make a world. Maybe God was bored, or maybe God was lonely, or maybe God just liked to make things and thought that it was time to try something big. Whatever the reason, God made a world, this world, and filled it with the most astonishing things, with humpback whales that sing, and white-striped skunks that stink, and birds with more colors on them than a box of Crayola crayons. The list is way too long to go into here, but suffice it to say that at the end, when God stood back and looked at it all, God was pleased. Only something was missing. God could not think of what it was at first, but slowly it dawned on him. Everything that he had made was interesting and gorgeous, and it all fit together really well, only there was nothing in the world that looked like him exactly. It was as if he had painted a huge masterpiece and then forgotten to sign it. So he got busy making his signature piece, something made in his own image, so that anyone who looked at it would know who the artist was. He had only one single thing in mind at first, but as he worked, God realized that one thing all by itself was not the kind of statement he wanted to make. He knew what it was like to be alone, and now that he had made a world, he knew, that he knew what it was like to have company, and company was definitely better. So God decided to make two things instead of one, which were alike yet different, and both would be reflections of him, a man and a woman who could keep him and each other company. Flesh was what he made them out of, flesh and blood, a wonderful medium, extremely flexible and warm to the touch. Since God, strictly speaking, was not made out of anything at all, but pure mind, pure spirit, he was taken by this flesh and blood thing. Watching his two creatures stretch and yawn, laugh and run, he found to his surprise that he was uh, uh, more than just a little envious of them. He had made them, it was true, and he knew how fragile they were, but their very breakability made them more touching to him somehow. It was not long before God found himself falling in love with them. He liked, them. he liked being with them better than any of the other creatures he had made, and he especially liked walking with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. 
It almost broke God's heart when they got together behind his back and did the one thing that he had asked them not to do and then hid from him, from him, while he searched the garden until way past dark, calling their names over and over again. Things were different after that. God still loved the human creatures best of all, but the attraction was not mutual. Birds were crazy about God, especially ruby-throated hummingbirds. Dolphins and raccoons could not get enough of him, but human beings had other things in their minds. They were busy learning how to make things, grow things, buy things, sell things, and more, the more they learned to do for themselves, the less they depended upon God. Night after night, he threw pebbles at their windows, inviting them to go for a walk with him. But they said that they were sorry, they were busy. It was not long before human beings forgot all about him. They called themselves self-made men and women, as if that were a plus and not a minus. They honestly believed that they had created themselves and that they liked the result so much uh, that they divided themselves into groups of people who looked, thought, and talked alike. Those who still believed in God drew pictures of him that looked, well, exactly like them. And they made it easier for them, it made it easier for them to run away from the people who were different. You would not believe the trouble this got them into. Everything from armed warfare to cities split right down the middle with one kind of people living on that side and this kind on another. God would have put a stop to it all right there except for one thing. When he had made human beings, he made them free. That was built into them just like their hearts and brains were. And even God could not take it back from them without killing them. So God left them free and it almost killed him to see what they were doing to each other. God shouted from the sidelines using every means he could think of, including floods, famines, messengers, and manna. He got inside people's dreams, and if that didn't work, he woke them up in the middle of the night with his whispering. No matter what he tried, however, he came up against the barriers of flesh and blood. They were made of it, and he was not, which made translation difficult. God would say, please stop before you destroy yourselves. But all they could hear was thunder. God would say, I love you as much now as the day that I made you. But all they could hear was a loon calling across the water. Babies were the exception to this sad state of affairs. While their parents were all but deaf to God's messages, babies did not seem to have any trouble hearing him at all. They were all the time laughing at God's jokes and crying with him, and he cried. And that went right over their parents' heads. Colic, the grown-ups would say, or isn't she cute? She's laughing at the dust mites in the sunlight. Only she wasn't, of course. She was laughing because God had just told her, that it was cleaning day in heaven, and that what she saw were fallen stars and angels who were shaking out their feather dusters. Babies did not go to war. They did not make hate speeches, littered, or refused to play with each other because they belonged to different political parties. They depended upon people for everything necessary to their lives, and a phrase like a self-made baby would have made them laugh until their bellies hurt. While no one asked their opinions about anything that mattered, which may have been a smart thing to do, almost everyone seemed to love them, and that gave God an idea. Why not create himself as one of these delightful creatures? He tried the idea out on his cabinet of archangels at first, and they were all very quiet. Finally, the senior archangel stepped forward to speak for all of them. He told God how much that they would worry about him if he did that. He would be putting himself at the mercy of his creatures, the angel said. People couldn't do anything they wanted to him, and if he seriously meant to be one of them, there would be no escape from the, for him from the things uh, if they turned sour. Could he at least create himself as a magical baby with special powers? It wouldn't take much, just the power to become invisible or maybe to hurl a bolt of lightning if the need arose. The baby idea was a stroke of genius, the angel said, but it, it really was, but it lacked the adequate safety features. 
God thanked the archangels for their concern, but he said no. He thought, it would be just a, he, thought he would just be a regular baby. How else could he gain the trust of his creatures? How else could he persuade them that he knew their lives inside and out unless he lived like theirs? There was a risk, and he knew that. Okay, there was a high risk. But that was a part of what he wanted his creatures to know, that he was willing to risk everything to get closer to them in hopes that they might love him again. It was a daring plan, but once the angels saw that God was dead set on it, they broke into applause, not the uproarous kind, but the steady kind that goes on and on when you have witnessed something you know you will never see again. While they were still clapping, God turned around and left the cabinet chamber, shedding his robes as he went. The angels watched as his midnight blue mantle fell upon the floor so that all the stars on it collapsed into a heap. Then a strange thing happened. When the where the robe had fallen, the floor melted away and opened up to reveal a scrubby brown pasture speckled with sheep right in the middle of them, a bunch of shepherds sitting around a campfire drinking wine out of a skin. It's hard to say who was more startled, the shepherds or the angels. But as the shepherds looked up, looked up at them, the angels pushed their senior member to the edge of the hole, looking down at the human beings who were all trying to hide behind each other, the poor things, they didn't have any wings. The angel said in a gentle voice as he could muster, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good, no good news that is of great joy for all the people. To you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And away up on a hill, far from the direction of the town, came the sound of a newborn baby's cry. God came into the world with skin on, for you and for me. And this Christmas season, maybe we don't fully understand or grasp all that that entails. But know that you serve a God who loved you so much that he left heaven to be with you. He left heaven so that we can move beyond the unfortunate things that we've done or that have happened to us in our lifetime. This Christmas season, celebrate the fact that we serve a God who moved into our neighborhood and became one of us to save us. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this, this message that we've heard this morning. Dear God, we thank you that um, even though we had messed things up, even though that we had um, just did almost the exact opposite things that you wanted us to do, you sent your son into this world. And when he came, he didn't come as a, as a spirit or as a, a powerful being. He came as one of us. He went through the trials of life that we went through. And he loved us. And he showed us who you were. And he brought with him grace and mercy. Dear God, we thank you for that today. And if there's anybody here in this room this morning that needs to hear that message, that God came for them, that God has brought grace for them, Dear God, I pray that they would hear that this morning and not be able to leave this place the same way that they came in. Dear God, we thank you for this season and this time that we have to worship you and to, to think about you stepping down from heaven and into this world. And dear Lord, as we go throughout all of the, the busy activities of this season, uh, may we not lose sight of that fact that this is the reason why we celebrate. This is the reason um, for the season that we, we are a part of today. God, we thank you for everything that you're doing, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.